BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast. Investments like building charging hubs for fleets of electric buses in California and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Ladies and gentlemen, record geeks, retired plate spinners, and millennials who want to impress their parents with their record collections. Welcome to the Rhino Cast Podcast, brought to you by Rhino Records. Get ready for new releases, deep tracks, and conversations with your favorite artists and bands. And balloons for the kiddies. And now, your hosts with the most, Rich Mahan and Dennis the Menace. On this episode of the Rhino Podcast, we speak with Des Dickerson about his time in Prince and the Revolution and the recently remastered and expanded 1999. Hey, Rich. Hey, Dennis. We are deep in the holidays, and did you get any great gifts yet? Well, you know, every time that I get something from Rhino.com, it's a little bit like it's my birthday or Christmas or Hanukkah. So, yes, I recently got the Fleetwood Mac 1975 to 1987 colored vinyl box set. It's all the albums from in between those years. Each one is colored a different color, which is kind of cool. I'm a collector, so I wanted to have that. You dance fans out there are going to love the Madonna clear vinyl editions that are coming out. That's something really cool. Anything out there that you've seen that you're digging? I got to tell you, the Soft Parade 50th Anniversary Deluxe Edition, The Doors, comes with a litho. And oh my gosh, not only does it sound great, but there's all these special vocal mixes and things like Wishful Sinful without horns and strings. I mean, for someone like me who loves that album, this is, is, is truly amazing. But also, it is that time of the year, the holiday season. We've got two great brand new Christmas albums that are available. We have Chicago Christmas. It is available in a mixed red and white vinyl, which is kind of cool. And there is a brand new Christmas album from Los Lobos, their very first. So if you're looking for some new Christmas music to spin at your holiday party, check it out, people. New music from Chicago and Los Lobos. And speaking of parties, today we have part two of the 1999 podcasts. Conversation from Nashville with Des Dickerson, original member of the revolution, and he has, as you can expect, some amazing tales to tell us. He worked very closely like they all did with Prince. And Prince really wanted it to be a band, as Des will tell us. Des played guitar alongside Prince. And he has unique perspectives to offer about the music, about touring with Prince, and what kind of a guy he really was. So I think everybody's going to really enjoy this because I certainly did myself. <laughs> Tired of waiting, baby, tired of giving you the upper hand. 
you introduce yourself, please? Absolutely. My name is Des Dickerson. Among other things, I guess I'm best known as the original guitarist with an obscure band from Minneapolis called Prince and the Revolution. Yes, yes, very obscure. Well, welcome to the Rhino Podcast. This is kind of the the official chat about the remastering of 1999. I think you've heard of that record before. I have, I have. What do you think? Any good? You know, I, I always thought that, you know, that the kid had promise. <laughs> and, uh, I'm glad to see that there's... There's a demand for that music out there. In, the old boy is there. We wouldn't be talking if there wasn't. So a little, That's right. So a little history. Let's go way back, as they say. When you were 14, I, speaking of, um, and, and we, we used the words, you and I used OCD before we actually got on, on, on camera here, but you practiced, practiced guitar six or seven hours a day? I, I did. I mean, I, I was... I was then and still am the kind of person that if I decide I'm doing something, I'm hyper-focused. So it got to the point where my parents were talking about, like, you know, arranging for me to see somebody to find <laughs> out if there was something wrong with me. Um, but, you know, it was all about making certain that I could prove to myself that I could do it. You were in a different band, but tell us about your 15-minute uh, audition that you had for Prince in, in 78. So, you know, I had a a history actually going back to age 14 of starting sort of local bands that became regional bands. And, you know, it was the front man and the, the booking agent and the, you know, I, I turned off the lights and locked the door when I left. Um, and I came to a point where I was in a band that was clearly dying. You get to know the death rattle when it comes oh, around. Yeah. And I saw this ad in a local music paper that said, um, Warner Brothers recording artist seeks guitarist and keyboardist. Well, there was only one person within 600 miles of the Twin Cities that had a major label deal. And I knew that it was this kid, Prince, who I hadn't met, but I'd heard about. He was kind of an urban legend in town. And so um, I was living in a house with the rest of my band at the time, you know, the veritable band house. So I had to like kind of sneak off to a phone booth because there were no cell phones back then and uh, kind of make the call. And I arranged for uh, an audition on a day when we happened to be leaving town to go play a gig in, you know, East Buzzard, South Dakota or someplace. So um, kind of pulled up thinking, okay, the timing's going to work out perfectly. They were two and a half hours late. The entourage <laughs> was like, horribly late and and myself and a bunch of other people are in the parking lot waiting well for me i had to be somewhere so when they did roll up i walked up to one owen husney who was prince's manager at the time subsequently my manager as well and said hey um i'm so sorry but i, I have a gig with my own band later on and and i have to get out of town it would it be okay if i went first so we we had a small window of time 15 minutes so i just kind of walked up plugged in Prince walked up, kind of shook hands, said hello. Actually, I don't even think he said hello. I think he just nodded and sat down, started playing keyboard. And I just kind of fell in behind him. It was him, Andre Simone, Bobby Z, and myself. And uh, just kind of played rhythm until he looked over and nodded. When he nodded, I kind of soloed for a minute, said what I thought I had to say, then went back to playing rhythm. That was it. 15 minutes later, I had to do the, I'm so sorry, but I have to go. Prince walked me out to the parking lot and had questions. He was like really, really 
deep questions for a guy that was like 19, 20 years old. But ultimately what he said was, what would you like to be doing, you know, five years down the road? I said, well, I'd like to be doing what I've always done. I mean, fronting my own bands and, and kind of, you know, doing that, but on a larger scale. So he said, would you be willing to help me do what I'm doing? And then when the time comes, I'll help you go back out and do what it is you do. And I said, yeah, <laughs> sounds like a good deal. And that was it. We shook hands. I left and started getting calls from him and the rest is history. Wow. And it's never been so easy since, has it? <laughs> it's like No, amazing. and it doesn't work that you know what I mean? It just it doesn't work that way, but that one time it did. If I had a number, I'd call you on the phone. So one of the things that you've talked about is your musical rapport and how the two of you gelled. And I'd like mm -hmm. to kind of hear a little bit of an inside story because, you know, the two of you meet in this amazing way and he's, you know, he's the quote discoverer, but then he really kind of found out what you were capable of too, did he not? Yeah, I mean, you know, in the beginning, part of why I got the gig, I found out subsequently, well, it was two things. It was that there was a, kind of a, a front man thing, and what he and Andre had talked about is having, like, you know, three guys, like three front men, instead of it being like one guy. And the fact that there was a vibe already. It wasn't one of those things where I walked in and, you know, they had to imagine me with a different haircut and 50 pounds lighter. You know what I mean? It wasn't one of those things. But what he subsequently found out was that musically, we had a lot of things in common in terms of kind of more the rock side of his interests and, and the things that, that he found exciting, but also that I was probably a much more accomplished player than he expected, which turned out to be a major bonus because he doesn't, didn't fool around with people who couldn't play. If he couldn't play, you weren't going to last long. So there was a respect that happened really early on and remained, you know, throughout the years. When you were both playing guitar, how did you work together so you didn't step on each other and you found complimentary parts? Did it become natural? Was it natural or did you guys sit down and chat it out? No, I just played louder. No, just kidding. <laughs> um, <laughs> no, it, it really did come down to a kind of a natural sort of a, a dividing line. I mean, Prince was one of the most amazing rhythm guitar players that I'd ever been around. And he kind of fairly quickly developed a respect for my lead playing. So what it really broke down to was I played a lot of rhythm while he was singing. When it came time to solo, even on the stuff that, you know, especially in the years leading up to me actually playing on the records later on, I mean, he just kind of deferred to me on the soloing thing. And it was always, it was predetermined kind of who was going to do what where, but a lot of it also was kind of on the fly. 
And if he looked over and nodded, kind of just like it was in the audition in the first place, if he looked over and nodded, you knew you were on. So it it, it worked itself out pretty smoothly, really. you've talked about is being you know kind of goofy kids having fun before kind of the mystique became a brand so where was that sea change where did you know that the fun really was turning into something big you know there were a couple of of sort of like checkpoints along the way it's funny because early on and i just told somebody this story the other day early on like our very first photo shoot as a band it really looked like somebody kind of you know, pulled up uh, at, at, you know, curbside in like a windowless van in <laughs> random points around town, put like a dark bag over people's head and dragged <laughs> them into the van and then dropped them all off at a photo studio, you know, and said, now you're a band. I mean, it was, it was that like disparate and weird, you know, but um, over time, because there was so much focus and energy just put into playing together and laughing together and kind of doing that thing that it gelled and the look developed and the sound developed and a lot of it was purposeful. I mean, there were some times early on where I spoke up a few times and said, you know what? We really don't look like a band. So we really do. We need to, we need to do something about this. And, and, and Prince was into just doing everything that could possibly be done for us to be the best, the most amazing performers, the most amazing image, etc. So there were points along the way where there was a show we did in, in uh, Denver at a place called the Rainbow Music Theater, Rainbow Music Hall, that was like a radio-sponsored thing, 1,500-capacity theater. We had just done American Bandstand. And at that point, really didn't know if people were paying attention or not. You know, we thought we were awesome, but, you know, you, back then you really didn't know. So we do this show. The show sold out. It was like a hard day's night. I mean, it was like nuts. We got chased by fans, like a <laughs> caravan of fans. It's the dead of winter in Denver, Colorado, which means cold and snow. So, I mean, at one point there had to be 20, 25 cars chasing us at like high speed on side streets. <laughs> oh, my gosh. And, and you, all, you always think it's like the, it's like the dog chasing the bus. What's the dog going to do when they catch the bus? Yeah. But <laughs> really, you, know. you don't want to find out. Right. So that that was that was a hint. I mean, that that night was absolutely amazing. I mean, they broke windows trying to get in the dressing room. It, it was just insane. And then we had those moments kind of going forward from there and and we knew at some point that this is bigger than we imagined it being. And we had some pretty big imaginations. We thought we were going to be stars, but we, we just, we had no clue.
one of the things you've said is that Prince surpassed his tutors who taught him music. And I thought that was a pretty interesting thing to dig into. He was, you know, the veritable sponge. And he had a real sort of, a, I don't know, a childlike curiosity kind of melded with this uber borderline alien scientific ability to analyze and break things down. So, you know, if you were doing something that he wanted to know how to do or understand, he would ask questions, he would watch intently, but there would come a point quickly where he would surpass whatever it was he could learn from you. And, you know, if he respected you, then you kind of became peers. If he didn't respect you, <laughs> you were kind of rolled out to the curb, and that was that. You know, he, <laughs> he, he learned what he needed to learn, and now you could move on. But uh, he, he was just a master at—and I say this with, with a great deal of love and respect. He knew a good idea when he took it because he would make it his own. He would see something. He would hear something. The light would go on, but then he would kind of take it into his— musical chop shop and you couldn't recognize it once it came back out So speaking of musical chop shops, tell me about The Pocket. The Pocket was everything, you know, and the penalty for violating The Pocket was severe. <laughs> you know, what it was was, you know, staying after rehearsal for six hours with the Lindrum going on in the background. Um, I mean, it, it's funny because I was accustomed to, I, I, as I mentioned before, I played in bands, led bands for probably close to 10 years before connecting with Prince. And you know, thought I understood meter, knew it wasn't something you parked next to, you know, I thought I understood. But it was just a whole other level, and he was relentless about it. And that's one of the things that I'm forever grateful. There, there's kind of a, he, he took me and all of us behind this velvet rope of the pocket and showed us something that I think few people at that point in time kind of had a grasp of. But, you know, again, if, if you weren't in the pocket, you know, <laughs> beatings would commence. No, not really. <laughs> but it, it, was, it was intense. Did he have his own vocabulary for describing how he wanted the feel to be? Yeah, I mean, th there were certain things. You know, one of them, and this is like obscure, but one of them that, that kind of came to mind uh, one time recently when um, some of us got together is he would, he would use the term, um, grab this chord right here. Because there were certain, from a guitar standpoint, there were certain chords that he used in his sort of recumbent way um, a lot. And if you listen to the music, if you don't know it from the inside out, you really wouldn't be able to tell. But on the inside, you knew that there's a certain, our, our language had a, a limited number of characters in it to some degree. Yeah. So it would be like, yeah, grab this chord right here. And you knew which one he was talking about. Oh, grab that one. Okay. Yeah, grab this one here, but play it up here. So he'd have a specific voicing or, or inversion totally. that he wanted to use. Totally. Okay. Yeah. And there were other things. I mean, it, it, it would be, you know, if it wasn't stanky enough, you know what he was talking about. But it was more, 
it was the pocket and the groove. And you could tell by the sound of his voice <laughs> where you were on that spectrum. <laughs> okay, but and and yet, and yet, despite the pocket, he called you over in nineteen well, for nineteen ninety-nine and said, you know, come on over and try some things. And what happened pretty fast was the 64th best guitar solo of all time, according to multiple resources. So that's that's kind of wild that that there's the pocket and then there's the improv that turned into that guitar solo on Little Red Corvette, which, of course, was multiple solos. So lots to talk about there. Yeah, it was it was kind of my ultimate Forrest Gump, you know, outcome, <laughs> I think, because for us, I mean, we had we kind of had our routine down by the time that album rolled around. And, you know, we'd been in this rhythm of, you know, Prince does a record, we rehearse the record, and in an infinite number of, of iterations and variations, we go out, we tour that record, we come off the road, you know, Prince goes back in the studio. Over time, that morphed to the point where the band was more involved in the process. And a lot of the songs um, started to be worked out kind of in rehearsals, and even on, on, in, on the road and sound checks, you know, in, in the, the back lounge or the tour bus, you name it. I mean, wherever there was a place for us to make music, songs were being written. So by the time we got to the 1999 record, you know, that, that cycle, that rhythm was well established. And, you know, we'd come off the road after controversy and had our break. And he started, you know, working on the record. But this time he did everything at home and didn't really, in the past, he had left and tr either tracked some of it out of town or mixed out of town. I literally got a call you know, while in in fact, it was earlier than I expected for it to happen. I didn't think he was that far along yet. I thought I had more time off. No, just kidding. No, I'm really not kidding. I thought I had more time off. So I, I get this call to drive out to the house, and um, you know, he wanted me to hear the stuff, and he he played me first. He played me in 1999, and wanted to know what I thought about the song. You know, because from the beginning, I mean, we, and I I really mean collectively, we he he wanted to have a band from day one. He didn't want it to be, you know, Prince. And then, you know, over here is the, you know, the shy lights or something. He wanted it to be a band. So he was really excited. I could tell about the fact that he felt that he had like really fallen into something with this one. And some of the things that we talked about and some of the things that he was after in terms of kind of combining this different, these different elements in such a way that there would be no excuse for it not to be huge. That's a weird way to describe it, but that's really what it was. So when he played me that song, I knew what he wanted to hear from me is, did I think that this was a radio hit? And of course I said, yeah, you know, this, this is it. This kind of hits all the, all the buttons and lights all the lights. And from that point it was like, okay, well, you know, here's some lyrics. I want you to go in and, 
he he played me a guide vocal that he had, but he actually had me sing the whole song. I mean, at that point in time, the whole structure of it that everyone knows from the actual single wasn't in place. And there were a bunch of vocals by different people, but it wasn't yet, okay, you sing this line from this verse, and then you sing that line, and then you go to this harmony on the chorus. It was none of that. It was just sing it. And and then after, you know, I kind of sang down the whole thing, it's like, well, do this harmony here. And he always gave me space. Um, he always kind of, again, he'd play a guide vocal or kind of say, you know, throw a harmony here, but he didn't, like, dictate it to me. We kind of moved on. An interesting thing about 1999, though, is that everybody's familiar with the Don't Worry, I Won't Hurt You at the top of the song. And, you know, correctly, people assume that that's Prince. But there's a reprise of that pitched down, like, you know, double octave low voice on the vamp out, just repeating the word 1999. Yes. Well, on that pass, that's actually me. Wow. Um, that was kind of one of his, you know, afterthought, not afterthought things, because no song was ever done until it was done, and even then it wasn't done. So as I'm doing this other tracking, he decided, wait a minute, I hear this other part, try this. So I, I laid down that part, and it sounds like it's the same voices at the beginning of the song, but it's not. remaster has literally 35 tracks of various sorts that that have never been heard before and it's got every version it's got the you know the dance mix and the single mix and and so do you remember like as the record was being made any discussion about some of the things that ended up on the cutting room floor that that maybe prince and you you know knew back then were going to surface in conversations like this one. Again, the ebb and flow of, of how music was made in that <laughs> ecosystem at the time was such that it was like a faucet that was always on. So, I mean, there, there, was, there was always something he was playing for you or wanting you to play on. Um, and we didn't really, there was a point where we stopped expecting that, oh, well, this is going to be on our record and maybe that'll be on the time record. And it was just all music and, and the water was up to our necks. again was something amazing to me because I used to play 1999 next to Hungry Like the Wolf when I was in clubs. And so when I heard that you mentioned that 1999 was Prince's reaction to the new romantic movement of the time, Duran Duran, Spandau Ballet, those kind of bands, I was like, wow, that that 
I never thought about it that way, but that makes perfect sense because I I used to play those things next to each other and it worked. But I think Oh yeah. But I think for the fans to think that a, a funky record like that and its connection to these kind of new romantic bands that were the thing of the moment, that this is this is something, you know, unusual to them. And the funny thing is, and, and to some degree, I mean you have to understand Prince, you have to understand our band, but you also have to understand the 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 town and the milieu that we grew up in. So it was different than other places. And even when I was coming up and, and I was going out to see bands and I was, you know, in, in junior high and high school and, and inspired to learn to play, I mean, there were cover bands around town that were multiracial in the 60s. Sure. And, and bands with, you know, like black lead singers singing rock music and white lead singers singing funk. And it was this whole mixed bag. And that's what we grew up with. So the idea of, of Prince loving all kinds of music and being inspired by all kinds of music is just n- natural to those of us that were kind of in, the, in the, the eye of the hurricane. But also the other thing is because funk was just in his DNA. That was the groove was always going to be there. The pocket was always going to be there. But, you know, I, man, I would see to it that I would introduce him to as many rock records of every kind that I could because I felt that was my duty and my role in the band. So, you know, new romantic stuff and punk stuff and pop punk stuff. And, man, I was always trying to get him to listen to everything I could because I knew that, number one, he'd be interested in hearing it and that one way or another, he was going to find a way to incorporate the things that he loved into what we were doing. When I was talking to Bobby Z, you know, the Petri dish that that became the revolution is is a formula that no one's, you know, no scientist is going to be able to go back to those to, to that Petri dish and and stir it up and ever come up with that again. There's no way and, and on a million different levels. I mean, one of them and this is one of the obscure ones is just the dynamic of how people come about the pursuit the epiphany that this is what I am. Making music and doing this is what I am. And then setting about the business of just giving themselves to it without the secondary or sometimes primary, you know, agendas and and head trips of I want to be a pop star, I want to be this, you know, I want to have all these Instagram followers, blah, blah, blah. We did it at a time when none of those things existed. And it was really about being the best that you could possibly be at doing what you did and then finding an audience for it. That sort of ecosystem, that's gone. Oh, I mean, yeah. it's a whole different thing now. <laughs> Thank you. 
said before that you were able to give him some of the most honest feedback. And I think, again, that's probably surprising to people because they probably don't see him as someone who who really, you know, sought that sort of communication. It's interesting because early on, um, when he was more surrounded with people that he knew and he trusted and I think had a greater depth of relationship, he was more open. I think over time he became more closed. But even within that subset of people, there were only a handful that he would be not not only completely open and willing to hear, but he would seek out your input. I mean, even even after I left the band, I remember getting a call, and this was back when he himself would call rather than have somebody call. I'm getting a call, hey, you know, there's going to be, we're going to send some, some airline tickets and, and, and leave some tickets that we'll call. You know, we're, we're, we're in D.C. and we're doing three nights, and I want to hear what you think about the new show. I want you to come out and hang out. You know, we got together the next day, and he said, you know, so, so what do you think? And there was, and I'm not going to mention my name, but there was a very, very well-known studio mix engineer that somehow Prince had talked into coming out and doing front of house. And I said, you know, man, the mix was horrible. Oh, no. I said, <laughs> I said the, the, the low end was just out of control, and it, it just swallowed up all the nuances of the music. I, I love the record, but it, it sounded horrible live. So wow. he literally went back and talked to the engineer, and he said, hey, my guitar player said the mix sucked. You got to fix it. <laughs> wow. But, but that was the nature of our relationship. I mean, you know, he wanted to know what I thought. He knew I would tell him what I thought. And he was okay with that. Really love you, baby. No matter what they say. If it'll make you happy, girl. I'll come home right away. So what song shall we go out with? You know what? <laughs> Man, I, that's a tough one. That is really, really a tough one. You know what? How Come You Don't Call Me is... Now, again, I don't know. That wasn't on the album, was no, it? No, but we've got released? it live. No, but we've got it live in Masonic Hall. It was the late show in Detroit. So we've got that. Yeah, there we go. I mean, that was one of my favorite moments because obviously that was where I stepped off stage, kind of stepped into my little side stage cubicle and changed into some dry clothes. Um, <laughs> oh, and I would, just, I would just be a fan at that point and listen. So that was always a moment for me every night during the show. I always thought you'd be by my side, baby. Now you're gone. What do I know, baby? This has been at least, you know, for someone who's both been a fan, but was also, you know, playing this music at the clubs and, and, and seeing this live, which of course we were talking about age when we started out and, you know, we're not kids, but this kind of stuff makes me feel like a kid again, because the memories are just so clear. 
and all these years later. And that is a tribute to obviously the work that you and the revolution and, and Prince did together. So thank you so much for that. Hey, it was my pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, again, I want to thank Des Dickerson for taking some time and sitting down with us and giving us his perspective on his time playing with Prince and the revolution, being a part of the revolution. I think he had a unique perspective being uh, the other guitar player and, and being one that Prince valued to the point where I thought it was really interesting where he said, I'm going to play less guitar. You're going to take all the leads because we all know what a smoke and lead player Prince is. You know? Indeed. But that solo, that solo is pretty darn famous The Dez did. It's good stuff. Good stuff from Prince. So check it out, people. There is the Super Deluxe Editions. It's a 10 LP DVD set if you want the vinyl and a 5 CD DVD set if you'd like the discs. It's also available to stream on your favorite streaming platform. Please check it out. Wonderful music from The Purple One, Out of the Vault. So many ways to party. Happy holidays, everybody. Be safe. Have fun. We'll see you soon. Thanks very much for tuning in. Don't forget to listen and subscribe on iTunes so you don't miss the next Rhino podcast. Executive producer for Rhino Entertainment, John Hughes. Produced for Rhino Entertainment by Pop Cult and Rich Mayhan Promotions. All rights reserved.